You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So today we are taking another step in our set of sermons through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Back in the fall, we started in the Beatitudes, and we got through most of those, and we've just picked it back up over the last couple of weeks, and are working back through the rest of Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So today, we are in a very famous passage that you just heard read. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So this is where we're going this morning, and to start, I want to begin by saying something that I hope by the end of this morning, you will be absolutely convinced of. And here's where I'd like to start, with the, with the simple, this simple idea that's a lot harder to believe than, than it sounds. Your life is really important. Like your life really matters. And I think we need convincing to believe that because it isn't easy to believe that, that, that your life really matters, that your life, not, not your neighbor's life, not the, the, the person's life who you wish you had their life, their life matters, it's not their life, but, but your life matters. And not just sort of matters or kind of matters, but, but your life really, really matters. The, the way you live, the things you do, the things you don't do, that these things really do matter, that, that your life matters. If Google can be trusted, and that's a big if, amen? Yep, all right. Uh, If Google can be trusted, there are 7.53 billion people alive with beating hearts right now on this planet. 7.53 billion. That's amazing, isn't it? So many people. I mean, I I don't really even have a way to think about 7.53 billion anything I don't even have a way to think about that concretely. I've never seen 7.53 billion people. I've never never seen 7.53 billion dollars, although that would be great. I've never seen 7.53 billion anything, right? I don't even have a way to think about that in in real terms. The only way I can think about that is abstractly. The the only way I can think about that is to say 7.53 and just start stacking the zeros behind it. It's such a big number. And, And people who sit around and think about things like population... It's amazing those people exist. Uh, They estimate that over the course of human history that there's been 108 billion people. 108 billion people have existed, have lived over the course of human history. That is so many people. It's a lot of people. People are prevalent. Uh, We are a common commodity in God's created world. People like you, people like me. And, and we're such common things in God's created world that it has this way of eating away at the belief that, that our little lives, our seemingly insignificant lives, can, can really matter. I, I mean, how, how could they matter? How could what we do or don't do really matter when there's 7.53 billion other people doing things and not doing things? So, so how is our contribution to that? How, how is that How is that that significant in any measurable way? It's so easy to slip into that way of seeing things that that our little lives don't matter. That there is nothing significant about our little lives, our one out of 7.53 billion. But that is not the way Jesus sees things. It's not the way Jesus sees our lives. In In this passage, Jesus is showing us that Our lives have been loaded with this unique capacity, 
Our lives have been packed full of this unbelievable potential. That our lives matter, not, not just sort of, not just kind of matter, but they really, really matter. Go, go ahead and go to Matthew 5, verse 16. And this is the punchline of the passage. This, is the, th- this verse contains the one imperative, the one do this in the passage. Th- this is where the, the primary point and punchline of this passage resides. Verse 16, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine. That's the imperative. Let your light shine. This is what I want you to do. Let your light shine before others. Let let other people see you. Let your light shine before others so that, that, this is the reason, so that they may see your good deeds, your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love this passage because it, it, it bestows dignity on every one of our daily lives. It's bestowing dignity onto your life. It's reminding us, Jesus is reminding us that Monday matters. Tuesday, what you do, what you don't do, these things matter. Your your life really, really matters. I just hope we can be convinced of that this morning. Our, Our lives matter. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Our lives greatly matter. If you want to sum up the point of verse 16, maybe you could summarize it this way. It's Jesus saying, yes, our lives matter. And here's the reason that they matter. Our lives are to be seen so that Jesus can be savored. This is why your life matters, that the things you do, don't do, the, the way you live. This is why it matters. Our lives are to be seen so that Jesus can be savored. This is why your heart's beating right now is you have the, the opportunity to do that. Our, our little lives, our one out of seven point. Five, three billion life. Our one out of 108 billion people in human history, our little lives, that they mean something. Our lives are to be seen, or even better, they're to be seen through so that Jesus can be seen through our lives and savored. That's how significant your life is. Now, when I come across Matthew 5, 16, it's an interesting moment uh, if you read the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount because it seems like what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is different than what he's saying in Matthew 6. So in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, be seen, like l- let your life be seen. But then you get to Matthew chapter 6 and it seems like Jesus is saying, but, but don't let your life be seen. Be- beware of letting anybody see what you're doing in your life. So it, it just naturally kind of bubbles up the question of like, well, Jesus, which is it? Should our lives be seen or should we be, uh, you know, should we beware of our lives b- being seen? And, and I think the answer to that riddle is Jesus looking back and saying, well, it depends. It, it depends on when your life is seen, what you want being seen, what do you want that to accomplish? What do you want people to savor after they've seen your life? And in Matthew 6, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and he is addressing them and saying, beware of letting your righteousness be seen before others. And here's the reason. It's because they wanted to be seen so that they would be savored. And Jesus is saying, if that's what you want, then don't be seen. If that's what you want, that that is like the sure road to a wasted life. Jesus is saying no to that. It's it's not you be seen so that you could be savored. No, Jesus is saying. That's Matthew 6, but in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying yes to that. If you want to be seen so that Jesus can be saved, if you want to be seen so that people could see through your life 
all the way to Jesus, the bread of life, the sacrifice of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus. If you want to be seen so that Jesus can be savored, then all day, yes to that. Amen to that. And this is his point in Matthew 5. It's amazing. Jesus is saying your life is packed with that potential for people to see through your life all the way to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, this isn't an isolated verse or an isolated passage in the scriptures. Uh, This is found throughout the Bible. If you read the Old Testament, God's people have always It's always been God's intent for God's people to be a light to the nations, for people to be able to see through God's people and see the truth about who God is. It's always been like that in the Bible, and you see this throughout the scriptures. Uh, There's an example of this in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, and this is where Peter, uh, he's talking to the church, and he says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, watch your life. Make sure that when you're dealing with people, it's honorable in the way that you deal with them. Make sure that you're honest. Your life matters, he's saying. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and do what? Savor Jesus. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is why your life matters. Your life is designed by God to be seen. And as people see your life and see through your life to savor the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is just bestowing dignity onto your life. He's saying that your life really does matter. Another example of this is John chapter 17. This passage is so sobering. So sobering. In John 17 verse 21, Jesus is praying and he says, that they may all be one. He's praying to his father. He's talking about his people, the church. He's saying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen to Francis Schaeffer comment on this verse. He says, here Jesus is stating something else, which is cutting and profound. And here's the the point Jesus is making in John 17. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. So, So Jesus in John 17 is saying that our lives have the capacity to authenticate or sadly to inauthenticate the reality of Jesus. That our lives are meant to be a translation to the world of here's the personal work of Jesus. Now let me translate the personal work of Jesus through a human life so that people can understand it. So that it becomes real and tangible and experiential for people. This is the importance of your life. Now, it's amazing because God didn't have to set up the world that way. I don't think I would have set up the world that way if I were God. I don't think I would have made the world in such a way, if I'm God, where where my credibility would somehow be linked to the credibility of my people. But that's how God set it up. Your credibility to somehow bestow upon God some credibility with people around. That, That you would have a life that would authenticate the good news of Jesus. And this, again, it's a bestowal of dignity. God is saying, your lives are important. They they really do matter. 
Now, now this is where this passage is taking us. And and I want to take the rest of this passage. We're going to back up now to verse 13. And I want to take verses 13 through 15 uh, in two parts. There's two parts that I want you to see underneath this big idea of our lives are to be seen so that Jesus can be savored. In the rest of this passage, Jesus makes a clarification. So he clarifies something, and then he invites us to something. So there's clarification and an invitation. So first, the clarification. Jesus clarifies what we are. What are we? One of the the great gifts of the good news of Jesus is that it imparts a new identity. Jesus offers us and imparts to us a new identity. And this new identity Jesus offered, it runs deeper than any other identity that you have given yourself or that anyone else has given you. The identity that Jesus offers, that the real you that he has made, who God says that you are, runs deeper than every other pronouncement over your life. This new identity given by Jesus It's deeper than our sin, it's deeper than our suffering, it's deeper than our gender, it's deeper than our ethnicity. This this identity that God gives us as sons and daughters, this identity of the bride of Christ, this identity is Jesus' body, this identity is his people. Right? These identities run deeper than every other identity that people pronounce over your life. This is the deepest thing, the most profound thing that could be said about you. And then in this passage, Jesus tells us two other things that we are. Not just what we do, but this is who we are. This is who God has made us to be as his people. As his people, Jesus says, you are salt. That's verse 13. You you are the salt of the earth. This is is who you are. This is a statement of identity. And by the way, this this is evidence of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't come in and say, uh, hey, if you make the grade, then you're going to be salt. If you can kind of work yourself up and kind of get out of the mess you're in and kind of be good enough, then you're going to be. That's not what Jesus says. He says, right now, in all of your weakness and all your frailties in the mess of your life, I have come in and made a new you at the core of you. You now are salt. You are now living. You are now living proof of my power. Now, why does Jesus use salt? Why salt? I love how one commentator says it. He says, here's the reason, because it's cheap and it's common, but it makes a difference that you can taste. That's why he's using salt as a metaphor. That's why he says you are salt. Um, I have traditionally not been into the cooking thing. I've just, I've never really, it's just never caught for me. Um, I like to eat. I don't like to cook very much. But over the last few months, I've kind of like taken a foray into the kitchen. I've got like a toe into the kitchen cooking thing going right now. And one of the things that uh, you don't have to be a genius to discover really early on in cooking is that virtually every recipe calls for this one ingredient, and that one ingredient is salt. Now, why is that? It's because salt adds flavor. It's because salt adds zest to food. It takes what would otherwise be bland and and adds this flavor and zest to it. So, So now Jesus is looking at his people using that metaphor, and he's saying, you are salt. This is what you are. You, this is what I've made you to be. You are salt. You, you're common. You're one of 7.53 billion. You're common. And, and let that relieve us. We don't have to be extraordinary. God isn't saying you have to be the best at any given thing. He's just, no, no, you're, you're common. You're just, we're, we're just, we're just not that extraordinary around here. 
You just, I'm just a person. You're, you're just a person. He's saying, you're, you're common. You're salt. But your life has been packed with the potential to make a difference that people can taste. You're salt. This is what I've made you to be. And as salt, our life seasons the sacrifice of Jesus. Our life is meant to season Jesus' sacrifice. Now, let me be clear that, that in the life of Jesus, he lived in our place, perfectly fulfilling every command of God while we failed them all. Right? So, so he lived in our place. He died in our place. And the third day, he rose from the dead. He came up out of the grave. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has secured for us everything we need to stand before God one day. Everything we need to done, Jesus has done. The, the sacrifice of Jesus is what every person, every, every part of the 7.53 billion of us, it's what every one of us need to, to be rescued from the wrath of God and to be secure in the family of God. So in that way, there is nothing, there is no spice that is needed to the sacrifice. Everything needed, Jesus has done. But here's the, the question that Jesus is addressing. He's not addressing, is my sacrifice enough? The Bible says yes to that. Jesus is assuming yes to that. So, so that assumption lies under this passage. Yes, it's enough. But here's the question Jesus is addressing. How will more and more people who are so eager for everything but God actually taste more of God? How's that going to happen? How are people that are so hungry and eager and wanting everything but God in the world, how are they actually going to get more of God? How's that going to happen? And Jesus' answer is really straightforward in this passage. Through you. That's how it's going to happen. Like, like you, you're through you. I'm going to, Jesus is saying, I'm going to use your life. I've made you to be salt. I'm going to use your life. This is, this is who you are on the inside. You're salt. I'm going I'm to use your life to flavor the world around you. You're the answer. Jesus is saying, you're going to be salt that's going to season my sacrifice. You're going to season my suffering with your life. I'm going to sprinkle you out into the world, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your schools if you're a student. I'm going to sprinkle you out into the world, and you're going to make a difference that people can taste. You're going to take my sacrifice, and you're going to make it tangible and tasty to the world around you. Many of us have heard a statement like this said. Many of us have heard somebody say, you're the only Bible many will ever read, right? Many of us have heard that sort of a thing said. I think we should change it to fit this particular context and passage. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that you're the only Jesus many will ever taste. You're salt. And as salt, you're meant to flavor. Jesus is bestowing dignity into your life. He's saying that, that I've made you in such a way, your, your life has been packed with the capacity to season my sufferings, to, to season my sacrifice, to make it tangible and tasty to people. Now, the, the context of every passage that you read in the Bible is important. It, it gives the shape and the, and the way that we need to see any particular verse, right? The context around it is helpful for that. Now, remember the context of this passage. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 come right after the Beatitudes. This is where we were last week. comes right on the heels of the Beatitudes. So in some ways, the Beatitudes are answering the question, well, how do we actually live as salt? How do we do that? Um, but there's even a, a more immediate context of the last Beatitude. 
The last thing we read right before we get to you are salt is verse 11. The last beatitude. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So the immediate context, the, the closest thing to you are salt is persecution. It's suffering for, for Jesus' sake. And I want to linger here because I think that immediate context is showing us that suffering is one way, maybe even the main way. It's one way, though, that we season Jesus' suffering. When we suffer with and for Jesus, we make the sufferings of Jesus sparkle to the world around us. We make the sufferings and the sacrifice of Jesus come to life for the people around us. So maybe you could ask yourself the question, when's the last time you have seen someone and they're on the mountaintop of their life. Like, they have been working so hard to accomplish this thing, and they just did it. Maybe it's the guy who, their team just won the Super Bowl. Maybe it's the person who, they've been working all their life, and they just won the Grammy. They just, whatever the thing is that they have been pursuing, and they're after, that they just got it. And then somebody sticks a mic in front of their face, and they get to talk, and the first thing they say is, um, well, let me thank God for, for this. Now, I appreciate that moment, but I'm not impressed by that moment. Right? I mean, it, it's, it doesn't, you don't have to even be a Christian to be thankful for kind of an ambiguous God up there for something good that's happened in your life. So I, I appreciate it, but I'm not impressed by it. But on the other hand, take our, our brother Job as a for instance. If you've read the book of Job, you know that um, Job, it, that book starts out with Job losing everything. He loses his money and possessions. His wealth vanishes. He loses his kids. He buries all of his kids. Can you imagine the heartache of that moment? All of his kids die. Uh, he loses his health. Boils are just ripping through his body. His life is so bad. I mean, he is literally just standing in the ashes of his life. And his life is so bad that his wife eventually looks at him and says, Job, curse God and die. And do you remember what Job does? He looks up at God and says, God, you give and you take away. Blessed be your name. When a person suffers like that, people pay attention. P people don't just appreciate it. People are impressed by it. C because suffering like that seasons the sacrifice of Jesus. Suffering like that allows us to see through it, and it makes the, the sufferings of Jesus tangible and tasty. It, it brings it down to real life. It makes them, the sufferings of Jesus real and beautiful in our life. And, and I want to just pause for a moment because some of us came in the, the room this morning, and we came in limping. I mean, w w some of us came in this morning, and we have grown such an appreciation for this for this simple miracle that God grants his people just to make it. Some of us came in like that. Life has just beaten the mess out of us. We feel bruised and broken. Some of us came in like that. And, and for those who came in the room this morning, and that's your life, we corporately, we, we want to be a church family who, who can weep with you in the middle of the grief that you're experiencing, the heartache that you're experiencing. And we want to be a church family who can, who can remind you that that, that, that this moment of suffering isn't without dignity. That, that Jesus has loaded this moment of your life, this season of your life, he, he's loaded it with unique capacity. 
to season the sufferings of Jesus with your own suffering. That Jesus has loaded this moment of your life for, for that end. He's packed it with that potential. Right now, your suffering, just that's, that's, that take your breath away painful. That, that he's built into that moment the potential of seasoning his suffering. Of making his suffering real and tangible and beautiful so that other people could come in and savor it and see it. Jesus says, you're salt. You're the salt of the earth. And as salt, your life is meant to season my sacrifice. But then he goes on and he says, you are light. You're the light of the world. Again, that's an identity statement. It's not just something you do. This is what you are. You are light. Now, that, is, that just contains such rich biblical imagery. You see that sort of imagery pop up throughout the scriptures. It was often applied to Jesus. So in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, this is, this is how Jesus is talked about as, as the New Testament introduces him. In him was life, in Jesus was life, and that life, the, the life was the light of men. So, so in Jesus is light. This is, this is what Jesus was. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, Jesus, as the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is how Jesus was talked about in the New Testament. And it's also how Jesus talked about himself. If you remember all those I am statements in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 8, verse 12, this is how Jesus refers to himself. And Jesus spoke to them, this crowd, saying, I am the light of the world. So this is how Jesus is talked about. This is how Jesus refers to himself. He is light. This is who God is. He, he is light. So then comes the question, well, okay, I, I get how Jesus is that. How in the world are we light then? How does that happen? How are we made light? Well, the answer to that question is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is, is a storied presentation. It's, it's a metaphor for, for conversion, for how we become a Christian, how we go from dead in our sins to alive in Jesus, how we go from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, how that happens. And this is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. If you're a Christian, this is why you're a Christian. This has happened to you if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. So, so this is what God said, let light shine out of darkness. That God has shown in our hearts. So, so, so that God who says, let light shine, he has done the shining. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How is a person made a Christian? How are we converted? How do we go from dead to alive in Jesus? Here's the picture. God pierces our heart with, with his light. And then he implants that light of Jesus in our hearts. That's how we become Christians. We're pierced with the light. That light gets implanted in our souls. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what God has graciously done to you. Pierced you with light, planted that light in you. So, so part of what 2 Corinthians 4 is, is showing us is to be light, we first have to be lit. Jesus actually has to pierce our heart with his light, then plant that, that, that light within us. Now, I think that just leads to the question, has that happened? We shouldn't assume that we're light. We should ask the question, has Jesus pierced my heart with his light and planted his light in me? 
Has he shown his light in me? Has that moment happened? Is that, has, that, has that occurred in my life? Now, one of the ways that you know that, or let me tell you that some of the ways that you shouldn't, kind of the grid that you shouldn't have, you shouldn't be asking, well, have I prayed a certain prayer? Do I go to church? Have I checked these boxes? That, that's not the question you should be asking. probably the best litmus test for has that happened, how do you know that, would be to ask yourself the question, has Jesus gone from just being useful to you to actually becoming beautiful to you? Like when you think of Jesus, do you love him? Like is there there a, a legitimate love of Jesus inside of you? That's what, that's what that means when it says the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus has been planted in your heart, has shown into your heart. It's like we went from dead, that means we hate Jesus, we do not like Jesus, to alive in Jesus. That when we think of Jesus, he's beautiful, he feels lovely to us. We, we actually love him. So, so when you think about the, the way that you see Jesus, the way you think about Jesus, do you love him? Is there a burning love of Jesus in you? And now Jesus says, for those who are light, all those who are my fathers, I've I've made you this light, and as light, your life illuminates Jesus' sacrifice. As light, your light shines now, illuminating the suffering sacrifice of Jesus, illuminating the beauty of Jesus. Now, again, isn't that just amazing that your ordinary, everyday life is infused with that sort of potential? That that your normal, everyday life has been designed by God to do that? It's an amazing thing, isn't it? That it's it's packed with that sort of potential to illuminate for people the, the sufferings and sacrifice of Jesus, making them beautiful to those around you. Now, when I look at verse 16 and see that command, let your light shine, I instantly think of the moon because there's this relationship with the sun and the moon that mirrors our relationship with Jesus and how we let our light shine. So think about how the sun and the moon work. The moon has no light in and of itself, right? Every light that that we see in the moon, like think of that, that pitch black night that all of a sudden there's a full moon that breaks through the clouds and now we can see in in the pitch black. How does that happen? It's because the sun shines onto the moon, and the moon then reflects that light back onto to the darkness of that night. And that is a great picture for how a Christian shines. We don't have light that's intrinsic to us. The, the Son of God, Jesus, he shines upon us, and then we reflect the light that is shined upon us back into the world. Right? This is why in Matthew 6, Jesus is like, it's so foolish for you to, to, to let your light shine and then to beat your breast as if people should be like impressed with your light. He's saying that doesn't make any sense to do that. No, no, you let your light shine so that people can see the sun. So, so that people can actually see and savor Jesus who is imparting that light to you. Our lives shine so that the sacrifice of Jesus can be savored. You, you are light. And as light... Your life illuminates the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus. So let me just kind of bring this down into maybe an illustration. Many of us have have friends who think they're Christians, who think they're followers of Jesus, who think they know Jesus, but they just don't know him yet. 
They think they're Christians, but they're just, they're not Christians yet. Uh, They're a lot like John Wesley. John Wesley um, was the founder of the Methodist Church, that whole movement. And uh, before he met Jesus, he thought he knew Jesus. He thought of himself as a Christian before he was actually a Christian. And and here was the big turning point in his life. It it happened on a, a, a particular day. It was in 1735 where he boarded a ship headed to America. And on that ship was a group of legit Christians. And all of a sudden, these Christians are out on the deck and they're having like a worship service out on the deck of the ship. And all of a sudden, this storm slams into the ship. And then this is what John Wesley later wrote about that moment. He says, a terrible screaming began among the other passengers. But the Christians looked up and without intermission, calmly sang on. In other words, everybody thinks they're going to die on the ship. And these Christians are just like, we're just going to keep our little worship service going. They just keep singing. I, and then later he said, I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? And this man answered me, I thank God, but, but no, I wasn't afraid. And then John Wesley said, I went on to ask again, but, but were your women and children, were they not afraid? And he replied again mildly, no, our women and children were not afraid. We're not afraid to die. And it was that moment that was the turning point in John Wesley's life. It was that moment watching courage in the face of death that showed John Wesley that he was close to the kingdom of God, but not in it. That showed John Wesley that although he thought he was a Christian, that he wasn't a Christian. And Stonegate, as salt and light, God has loaded your life with that capacity to awaken people to the real Jesus, your life, like your daily life, how you live, what you do. It's meant to do that for people, to bless people in that sort of a way. Maybe you could think of it this way. Your life is the most persuasive thing that you have, especially in our age of skepticism. Your life is the most persuasive thing that you have. Graham Tomlin um, he, was, he wrote a book on Blaise Pascal, and I want, you, I want you to hear just part of him condensing down how Blaise Pascal, he was a French philosopher and theologian, how he saw this particular thing. And listen to him talk about this. He says, if you don't make people want to believe the gospel is true, if you don't make them want to believe it, it doesn't matter what sort of arguments you lay before them. So if they don't want to believe it's true, you're not going to convince them through arguments that it is. For Pascal, presenting someone with a list of proofs for Christianity or evidence for faith is probably a waste of time. If someone doesn't want to believe, no amount of proof or proof text can ever convince them. Listen to what he says here. The crucial factor in persuading someone to believe then is not to present evidence, but first to awaken a desire for God in them. In other words, when commending Christianity to people, make it attractive, make good men wish it were true, and then show them that it is. Such arguments as there are for Christianity can convince those who hope it's true, but will never convince those who don't. Now, it's ironic. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, when Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. That word good, good works, that word good, 
can be translated attractive. It would be equally valid to say that they may see your attractive works, your good-looking works. In other words, God has created our lives with the capacity to, to look good, to commend Jesus to people. This is what, this is what Jesus is getting at. That our, our lives are to, are to season the sufferings of Jesus, making it full of flavor. That our lives can illuminate the, the sacrifice of Jesus so people can see the beauty of it. This is what, what Paul is getting at in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, when he says, Your life, it can adorn your doctrine. It can, it can beautify your doctrine. I, I, it can take your doctrine and your life you can make, with your life, you can make your doctrine sing to people and look beautiful to people. That is why your life is so important. That's why your life matters. Because people can, can see your life and that's an occasion for them to then savor Jesus. You are salt. You are light. There's the clarification. I'll end just briefly with this, the invitation. The invitation. The invitation is really simple. It's Jesus saying, I've made you this. Now live in this. Now do this. Let what I've made you, let, let what I've put inside of you come out of you. Do what you are. Like you are salt, so, so function as salt now. You are light. Now, now let the intrinsic sort of connection between the light in you and what light does come out of you. And this is what you have in, in verses 13, 14, and 15. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus is saying you are salt, and salt has a function. Here's the function of salt. It flavors things. And here's his point. You're salt, so, so do what you are. Let what you are come out of you. Let what you, what you are now season your life, season the sacrifice of Jesus, making it savory and enjoyable for those around you. He's saying, don't, don't let the salt of your life stay up in the pantry. If you do that, you're, you're disconnecting salt from what it's made for. It's just, it's useless in the pantry. But, but you spread your life around, that salt around, and it's so useful. He goes on in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Same point, different metaphor. Just like salt is made to season things, light is made to illuminate things. No, no one takes a candle, lights it, and then puts a basket over it. No one does that because it's defying the very purpose of light. And that's his point. He's saying, you are light. So now, now do what you are. I've made you this. In my grace, I've made you this. My light has pierced your soul. It's been implanted in you. So, so let what is in you now come out of you. Let your life illuminate the, my sacrifice, my suffering so that others can see and enjoy it. Don't hide your light under a basket. If, if you do that, you're defying the very purpose of your life. No, no, don't do that. Let your life shine on the beauty of Jesus so that a dark world can admire and see it and savor it. Our lives are to be seen so Jesus can be savored. Every time I read Ephesians chapter 2, I'm amazed. Paul says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
for good and attractive works which God prepared beforehand. Like before you ever existed in this world, God had, God had prepared you and made you and made good works for you, attractive works that would illuminate the beauty of Jesus and, and season the sufferings of Jesus. He, he made all of those things for you to walk in. He prepared all of those things beforehand, and Paul says that, that you should walk in them. And this is what Jesus is saying. Let's, let's get about that. He's encouraging us. He's, he's calling us forward and saying, let what is in you come out of you so that the sacrifice of Jesus can be seen and savored. So Stonegate, will you bow your head and pray with me? I want to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful to wipe away what would not be helpful. What might that look like for you to be salt and light right now? Maybe that's opening up your mouth and talking about Jesus to a friend or a coworker, a neighbor. Maybe that's in caring for the vulnerable. Every moment where we meet the need of a vulnerable person, we, just like the moon, we are receiving that from the Lord, that light from the Lord, and we are reflecting that back into the world. Maybe that is serving. Maybe that's in generosity. Maybe that's, maybe that's in hospitality, opening up our home. Using our home to be a little outpost of the hospitality that Jesus offers. Maybe that's in forgiving and not holding a grudge. What might that look like for you? And I am so grateful this morning that we get to finish by taking communion together. Because a passage like this, um, it feels daunting to me. I mean, there is a part of me that I, I look up at God and I say, God, maybe my life, life matters too much. So God, help me. Help me. And I'm thankful that, that we're ending with communion because it's a reminder. It's a visual reminder of Jesus there upon a cross dying for our sin, his body broken, his blood spilled for our sin. Jesus in our place. It's a visual reminder that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the Spirit of God now indwells us empowering us to, to actually live as salt. Not just to do it, but to, or to be it, but to actually live it, to actually live as light. It, it empowers a life of letting our light shine, of walking in the good works that God's prepared beforehand. And let me remind you of who communion is for. Communion is for those who are in a relationship with Jesus. 
And so if, if today you are not in a relationship with Jesus, if you're thinking about that, you've been considering Jesus, but you've never taken that decisive step, this is your day. That this is your day to push your life across that line. So before you take communion, take Christ this morning. O offer your life to him. H hold your life up and say, here I am. I am depending on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God save me. And God just stands here with arms wide open, ready to do that. And communion is for not only for those who are in relationship with Jesus, but for those who are in right relationship with Jesus. So is there any area of your life that needs to be repented of? Any sin that needs confession? Things that you have done, things that you haven't done? I, I love communion because it reminds us that we find in our confession a God who loves us enough to die for us. That as we confess and repent of our sin, that we can expect, expect to be met with the mercy and grace of God to help us. So, oh God, would you now help us, speak to us, talk to us? God, we want to hear from you, the living, resurrected God. It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.